Good morning, Fremont Community Church. It's great to be here with you today. I've seen some Halloween costumes already. We have a, a Priscilla, Priscilla Taco somewhere around here, if anybody's seen Priscilla. Um, and then, hey, um, so the choir apparently decided to dress up as me for Halloween. I saw a lot of flannel shirts and square glasses. Uh, so if you are one of those choir members who became as me for Halloween today, would you stand up? Stand up around the room. How dare you? <laughs> and it's the one week I didn't wear a flannel shirt, too. That's the funniest part. Um, my name is Eric. I'm the lead minister here at Fremont Community Church. It's great to be with you here in person and online. And we've been going through a, a series on Galatians. Um, and this morning, we're going to see some strong, some extreme language, language from the Apostle Paul. He uses uh, the literary device of hyperbole in this passage to great effect. And um, <clears throat> he, he grabs the attention of his audience. And they're like, what? You know, it's that kind of thing that he's doing today. Hyperbole is a big part of today's message. But before I get there, I want to wish a happy birthday to my wife, Adrian. Uh, it is not hyperbole to say that she is the smartest, funniest, most beautiful person I've ever known and the best mom in the world. And I love you. Um, uh, that's right. That's right. Cheer for her. Hyperbole is one of my favorite literary devices. I love that the Apostle Paul uses it, although his use of it today, I'm going to warn you, is awkward. Um, for you students who have an English test this week, uh, you can thank me for this refresher. Hyperbole is the use of exaggerated statements uh, that are meant to make a point but not to be taken literally. I'm as hungry as a horse. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Excuse me. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I died of embarrassment. I told you a million times, pick up your dirty socks. That one might actually be more accurate. But um, <laughs> I love this as a literary device because if you know me, I use it constantly. If, if something good happens during my day, it's the best day of my life. If the Cleveland Guardians get knocked out of the playoffs, this is the worst day of my life, even though I go about the rest of my day relatively happy because life is good, right? Some of you guys are like, Cleveland Guardians, boo. Every time I have a good meal, this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> Every single day, I somehow find the cutest video of French bulldogs that the internet has to offer. And this is what you do when you're allergic to dogs. You just look at videos of French bulldogs on your Instagram feed. That's literally all I follow on Instagram. All this to say, the Bible and the characters in the Bible, they often use hyperbole to make a point. Think of Jesus when he says, hey, take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck. He wants us to see this ridiculous, over-the-top expression so that we go, oh, I need to look inward before I start correcting everybody else. He wants to get our attention. And oftentimes it's through humor, uh, or oftentimes it's through very strong language to make a point. Today we're dealing with a passage that has strong language. Paul is not messing around as he talks to the Galatian church through this letter. It's one of those passages that if you're reading with young children, you might skip and say, hey, let's go to the next chapter and see what's going on there. Um, it's, it's awkward. I'm just going to say that. So it's PG-13. So if you're, you're you know, young or you have an immature sense of humor, let's all just agree to be mature today. Can we do that? I saw somebody shake their head. Nope. I won't do it. All right. So with that, let's open up Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read this, this strong statement that, that Paul is coming out with. He's talking about what, what Christ has done for us, 
and it's the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and current rule over all things as the gospel. And this gospel has set us free. And so Paul starts in verse 1 by saying, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Neither has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing him into confusion, whoever that might be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still pre- preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Okay, wow. What are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> We're going to zoom in on a few key verses in this. We're not going to inspect every single thing here. That's what's so hard about doing a series through the book of the Bible. We can't zoom in on every verse. But we're going to zoom in on a couple to see what Paul is trying to do here. I mean, this this last verse is, is like, what is going on? I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You know... When, when the, the, the messenger that Paul sent with that letter, the way this would have worked is Paul would have sent this letter with a messenger to go read the whole thing in its entirety to the people in that church. You know when he read that, people are like, wait, 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 hold up, hold up. Pa- can we pause there? This is weird. I need you to explain further. It would have caught their attention, which is exactly what Paul is trying to do here. I think it's important that we zoom in on verses like these because it challenges this idea that sometimes we have that a plain reading of the text is the best way to understand Scripture. But so often there is so much more going on in the context at that time and place that we need to know to truly understand the meaning. So for me, I go to uh, commentaries. I go to Bible commentaries. Uh, I've got three or four on Galatians uh, that, that, that we've been going through. Our pastoral team that's preaching this series have done. Uh, uh, commentaries by David De Silva, N.T. Wright, Tim Keller. And so I've gotten a lot of, of my context from reading these things. And it helps open up what's really going on in the situation. Sometimes you need to do a deeper dive to understand what Scripture is truly saying. And so when we zoom in on this passage, is Paul really wishing violence on people? That doesn't seem consistent with the message of Jesus, and it doesn't seem consistent with the rest of the book. They should go the whole way and emasculate themselves? First of all, what a weird thing to be talking about on a Sunday morning. Uh, (laughs) Second of all, uh, it doesn't seem to jibe with what's going on. And so how do we understand what's going on? Well, first, it's important to know the context. Around the time and place that the the recipients of this letter would have received this, there's actually a Greek cult that exists. It's a Greek cult that worships a false god, a false goddess, actually. And they had these crazy worship ceremonies where they would whip themselves up into a frenzy, and it culminated in the men castrating themselves. Yeah, it was bonkers, right? And, And people watching from the outside are going, what is going on? 
Now see, this, this, this practice of circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham, and it was this thing that was meant to say, we're the people of God, and this is an identity marker that we are different from the rest of the world, not because we're better, but we want to point people to the God who is greater than all of the other false gods out there. That's what circumcision was about. But what do you do in a context where there's a cult around that's going even further than that and, and it, it, taking part in this crazy ritual? All of a sudden now, the, the people who are, are, are either Hebrew or Christians who are turning to become Jewish so that they can become a Christian, which is a big controversy that's going on in here, they don't look anything different than Greek idol worshipers. We've now lost the distinction from the world. We don't look any better or different from them. It is no longer an important identity marker for a follower of God, for somebody in the family of God. So that's going on around this time, and Paul is drawing their attention to that, saying, hey, are we no better than these people? That we're putting our, 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 our stock and value in this outward expression of the faith? It's like if I had said to everybody at this church, if you want to really follow Jesus, you will wear a flannel shirt and glasses like mine, and then God will love you. And, and Will Walker wears it every day, so he's good. <laughs> These outward expressions aren't key identity markers anymore for God's family. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying we got, we can't, our criteria has to be a little bit better than these crazy cults out there, right? We have to be better than that. But the other thing that he's doing here is he is using uh, literature. The, the Bible is full of many different genres of literature. God communicates to people in a context, in ways that they will understand. And so he's using literary devices to help them see how important this is. He's using hyperbole. He wants their attention. Go all the way, emasculate yourselves. You might as well. What? I better listen. This guy, is not, he's, he's pretty angry, but he's saying some, some extreme things. I better hone in on what he's trying to say. The second literary device he uses, and this is what's so fascinating. This is why we got to dig deeper. That's why a plain reading of the text doesn't always get us there. We have to dig deeper. There, there, there's repetition used. If you look in verse 7, he says this, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Paul uses very similar language in verse 12. In verse 7, it's cut in on you. But in verse 12, it's cut off. That's the word for emasculate. It's actually cut off, right? As for those agitators, I wish they would go all the way and cut themselves off. Now, you're like, okay, it's not getting less weird, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but here's what Paul is doing in this verse. He's, he's using this literary device of repetition so that they don't miss the point. He's using a phrase that they would have understood if they knew the Old Testament well. This phrase, cut off, was used regularly to talk about people who chased their own sin down. They just wanted to live their own sinful ways, and they were cut off from God. And most often, it's saying they're cut off from the family of God. This is the phrase that Paul wants us to use. And these Judaizers, these ones who are saying, you have to get circumcised, you've got to live by kosher food laws, you've got to do all these outward expressions of things if you want to truly be a part of God's family or else you're cut off. Paul is saying, no, 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 it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. If you want to put your faith in these outward expressions, in your own ability to save yourself, you're the one that's cut off from the family of God. You haven't accepted the true gospel. You've accepted a false gospel. You don't know the real Jesus. You're cut off from his family. That's what Paul's really getting at here. Man, he likes to use a really awkward way to get there, doesn't he? But... He's dealing with the controversy of his time, and so he uses the tools at his disposal to make this really strong point. There is one true gospel. 
There is one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ alone, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Amen. So, a brief summary of Paul's strange uh, but, but contextual uh, argument here is he's saying, if you want to be circumcised, then th- that has no value to God, and so you may as well be participating in idol worship. Paul uses this extreme language to get their attention, so they'll stop and really listen to what he has to say, and he uses this circumcision argument to say that that's no longer a key identity marker of God's family. It used to be, but it is not that way anymore. God is doing something new. So, if circumcision is no longer a key identity marker for God's true family, what is? I love this in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is the identity marker of someone who is a part of God's family. Faith that expresses itself through love. Okay, so circumcision is not a uh, controversial issue today in our church as it was for the Galatians. But last week I actually talked about um, uh, some false and half gospels that we in our time and place are tempted to believe and put our faith in. And um, if you haven't seen last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and watch it because it's really helpful. We, we sometimes need to diagnose the ways that we are pulled away from God in believing in, in false gospels or even half-truths, right? And, and in the same way that the, the Galatians were being told, this is the requirement for being in God's family in this false gospel, we have, we're, we're offered these false gospels that require something of us as well. And I won't dig too deeply in this, but I just encourage you to either go back and watch that or watch our, our midweek mashup where I talked about this in even, even more detail. But it, it, these false gospels, they may require us to hate you got to hate who we hate. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. If you want to be on our team, you got to hate the people we hate. It's not from Jesus. The prosperity gospel tells you that you got to give to get, right? Because faith, faith is actually symbolized through material wealth. If you've been materially blessed, it's because you have faith, and if you haven't, it's because you don't have faith. But you got to give. Giving is a, is a, is a you know, a exercise of faith. So you got to give if you want to get. And meanwhile, you know, preachers of this gospel get rich while their congregants stay poor, wondering why don't I have enough faith to get wealthy? Gospel of comfort tells us to play it safe and ignore the suffering of others because God isn't involved in suffering, ignoring the fact that Jesus spent most of his time with the poor and the oppressed, right? Last one, the gospel of empire tells us we'll gain influence at any cost. We do what we have to do to get power because that's what it truly means to, to rule with Jesus here on this earth. Again, more, more info on that stuff um, from last week's sermon and uh, on the midweek mashup. I could go on and on about this, but we are constantly pulled from the true Jesus to these false and half gospels that require something of us. And usually the thing it requires of us has nothing to do with Jesus. All of these expressions, the logical outworkings or, or requirements of these false and, half gospels, false and half gospels don't lead to the flourishing of life for us as individuals or for our communities. And that's what, that's what Galatians is all about. How do we live fully alive? How do we bring that life to anybody who wants it around us? 
They, they don't express to the world around us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They preach a gospel, a word that means good news, but it's also ultimately absent of good news. But what does? What does truly express good news? Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Man, that is something to memorize. That is a verse to memorize. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is good news. And how should that good news be expressed? By a people shaped by that love. That's the effect of the gospel on your life, on my life. Faith expressed through love. Let's get back to Galatians 5 and, and see Paul continue to drive home this point. He says this in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be con become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So first Paul reminds the Galatian church that you are a part of God's family. And there's no secret knowledge that you need. There's no uniform, no flannel shirt that you need. There's no magic formula to please God or religious ritual that makes you special. No, God's family are identified by their humble service to one another in love. You want to obey the law? Jesus said, fine. Here's how you obey the law. It's entirely fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, walk by the Spirit and avoid the desires of the flesh. This is Paul's way of saying, you used to be in slavery to sin. You sold yourself over to sin, and Jesus has come, and he set you free by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he's now reigning over all things, and he sent the Holy Spirit to live with us and in us to give us victory and to make possible what was once impossible. The Bible says that one day he will, we will all die this physical death, but there's a promise of resurrection. We're invited to be in God's presence in not just some spiritual way. We're not going to be like, you know, disembodied spirits kind of like floating on a cloud and playing a harp like in all those old cartoons about what heaven is supposed to be like. No, it's a whole person, spirit and body resurrection where we will dwell with God in a new heaven and a recreated earth. And in this new heaven and new earth, which Paul call, calls God's kingdom or the kingdom of God, 
There will be no more sin, which means there will be no more pain, and there will be no more tears, and there will be no more death. This is our future. This is our hope. And what Paul is saying is that through the Holy Spirit, we, as God's family, we're already citizens of that eternal kingdom. And we can live in such a way that demonstrates that we're citizens of that kingdom. We can allow the kingdom to break through here and now. But we're in this weird in-between time where the, the kingdom of God has been introduced and it's breaking through, but it hasn't fully been ushered in. We're what theologians call the already-but-not-yet kingdom. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're constantly pulled in two different directions. We're constantly pulled towards that kingdom of God, and we're constantly pulled back toward our slavery to sin. Remember the old cartoons where there's like a, a devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, right? You remember that? That's somehow what it, sometimes what it feels like to be a Christian. We are trying to do what's right. We are trying to live in freedom and in God's healing and his forgiveness. We're trying to live out new life and we're constantly pulled back to our old life, our old ways of being, our old habits. This is the challenge that we have. Paul actually has a whole chapter on this in the book of Romans. He writes a lot about this. He says, I, 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 I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do that I want to do. And I'm constantly doing the things that I don't want to do that I'm not supposed to do. We're at war with ourselves a lot. And so Paul gives us these lists, lists that can be helpful. N.T. Wright, uh, a New Testament scholar, puts them in these terms. The acts of the flesh are dehumanizing. And the fruit of the Spirit are humanizing. One list diminishes human flourishing. It's not life-giving, not for individuals and not for communities. The other list promotes human flourishing. It brings life. And a quick note, you know, when we talk about this list that he gives, the acts of the flesh, let's remember that this, this letter is written to the church. Okay? These words are not to be a weapon to those outside the church to say, you should live like I live. Put on your flannel shirt. No, no, no. This list is a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and say, how are we doing? Are we living faithfully? Like there's this whole list of, you know, people who, who live sexually immoral lives don't inherit the kingdom of God. And yet the church doesn't seem to be doing that much better than those outside the church. And, and you look at the divorce rate amongst Christians and it's, it's just as high as it is of those outside. Because we, we look at these verses sometimes as a sword instead of a mirror. How are we doing? How is the family of God doing with these things? The other thing is we like to ignore certain things in these lists in favor of, of you know, talking a lot about others. Half of, of the things that, God, uh, that, that Paul talks about here that are acts of the flesh have to do with our posture towards other people. He says hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. For some reason, we don't seem to call those things out as much as we want to call out other things. And I think part of it is because when we hold up that mirror to ourselves, we're like, dang, I harbor some hatred, but at least I can keep it secret. I have selfish ambition, but hopefully nobody can see that. And we live in a world that runs on antagonism, and too often Christians are not being people of peace. They're just throwing fuel on the fire of dissensions, factions, and envy. Again, these, these verses are a mirror for us and not a weapon to be used against those we see as enemies. 
But look again at the, the last verse in this section. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inter- inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because these acts are dehumanizing. Many of these things that he's talking about were actually part of the pagan worship of their day. And so, so it's not just like individual lives. He's saying we can't be like these folks. They're dehumanizing others in their, in their twisted religions. But they also do damage to our humanity. They cause us to use and abuse other people for our own temporary gain. They turn us into something that we were not created to be. They don't allow for true flourishing. They aren't life-giving for ourselves or others. And, and Paul's talking about people who live like this. This is their way of life. This is not like, hey, I'm in this sin struggle, and most days I've got this under control, and other days I just keep getting pulled back and I stumble. But I'm moving in the right direction, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who have devoted their lives to these things. What's our trajectory? What are we striving for? That's what he's asking us here. What is the life-giving way of being God's people that we can cultivate together? How do we move away from these things that we might experience and demonstrate faith expressing itself through love? When Paul says those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God, it reminds me of this video. This poor guy, look at him. He got a big old stick, he's so happy to have the stick, and he can't fit through. He's stuck. Poor guy, right? And they're like pointing, hey, try this. Nope. <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to pull it through. I'm going to pull it through. <laughs> Still stuck. Still stuck. Poor guy. Yeah. See, that's cute when it's Rover trying to pull this big stick through the gate. <laughs> but it's not cute when we're trying to bring our sin into the kingdom of God. You see, we're trying to have it both ways. We want the salvation and the peace that God has, but we also want to hold on to our self-centeredness. These things that bring us temporary satisfaction, these things that bring destruction around us, these, bring, these things that do not bring life. But God's kingdom is a place of life, true life, and these sinful and destructive things in our lives cannot come with us. They don't fit through the gate. They bring destruction And there's no destruction in God's kingdom, only life. So let's drop them now and walk away. Let's leave them behind, not just so we can get through the gates into God's eternal kingdom, but so that we can start living in his kingdom right here and now, experiencing true life through the Spirit. Let's instill life-giving words and actions into other lives as well. How? Well, by being transformed by the Holy Spirit, by pursuing God daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, asking him to instill in us love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the identity markers of those who are in Christ. Those who are part of God's family, this is what they look like. In pursuing this fruit, You actually have true and lasting fulfillment in your life because you're living here and now already but not yet, but you're living as citizens, investing in the eternal kingdom of God. What you're investing in will will live on forever. And it's also in pursuing this fruit in in the world around you uh, that you can experience new life and share it with others. Think about these verses from a missional standpoint. People can argue with your theology. 
People can argue with your ideas about the Bible or how the world works, but they can't argue with your story if your story demonstrates the transformation in Jesus. They can't argue with love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we live like this, we demonstrate the true Jesus. Not the half-truths about Jesus or false gospels. The fruit of the Spirit demonstrates the true gospel, the true good news. Because if it is actually good news for me, then it's good news for everyone. It's an invitation. Come and experience the, the good news that God loves you and that you can leave behind your old way of life and all the pain and the guilt that come with it and you can have a new life of freedom that truly feels like living. Okay, so what is this awkward journey we've taken from Paul talking about circumcision to finishing with talk, talking about uh, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit? What does it mean for you and for me this week? One step this week is a simple one, and I would just encourage you to do this. Now, whether you, you like to read uh, out of a, a physical Bible or you like to listen to an audio Bible, I'd encourage you this week, memorize the fruit of the Spirit. Print it out. Put it on your mirror and in your doorways. Listen to it over and over again. Keep these truths in front of you at all times to remind you this is the true identity marker of those who are part of God's family. This is what I want for my life. This is what I want to pursue today. And the beauty of it is we're not alone. He gives us the Spirit, and through the Spirit's power, we can actually do it. Another step is starting to uh, start seeing what Paul says is the core of living our faith in Christ. It's faith expressing itself through love. Ask yourself this week, how can I express my faith by loving others in every environment I will be in? Paul says it looks like humbly serving one another in love. How can we do that? Who can you serve at school this week? What does it look like to express your faith by loving others? At home, at work, on your commute. That one's for me. I'm getting a little angry in the car lately. <laughs> How can you express your faith in love through in your neighborhood this, this, this weekend? How can you do that at church or in your missional community and so on and so forth? How can we set our course on that? Expressing, our, our faith expressing itself through love. I'm going to invite the choir to come up and the, and the band to come up, and I'm going to pray, and as they do, let's remember where this is all headed, right? Already, but not yet. Jesus has done this amazing thing that has set us free, and we're on a path to where? He gave up his life that we might find true life and he came with an invitation to the new heaven and the new earth where we will dwell in God's presence for eternity. It's a place where I can't bring my pride. It's a place where I can't bring my self-centeredness or my selfishness. But because of that, it's a, it's a place where there's no pain or tears or death. How can I rely on the Holy Spirit this week to experience a bit of that now? How can I help others to experience heaven on earth right here and right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Even as we're encouraged toward the fruit of the Spirit, we recognize that in our own strength, we, we are stuck. We go back over and over again to our habits, to our centered, self-centeredness, to our pride. 
But Lord, you've given us victory because you have defeated sin and death. And you have given us your Holy Spirit. It's not through our strength, but it's through your strength that we can truly be alive. So this week, Jesus, fill us with love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That we might truly be alive, but also that we might bring with us the good news that there is a God who doesn't leave us lost. There is a God who doesn't leave us defeated, that Jesus chases us down, that he gave everything, his, his very life, so that we might have life. Help us to experience the gospel every moment of every day and to bring that good news with us everywhere we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.